on the cusp of a new year as a way of beginning to frame our reflections on what is happiness and how do we get more of it and what is a good life. I invite you to hear a poem by the singer-songwriter Carrie Newcomer titled, Because There Is Not Enough Time. Have you ever felt that way, that there was not enough time? She writes, I used to think that because life is short, I should do more, be more, squeeze more into each and every day. I'd walk around with a stick ruler with increasing numbers as a measure of fullness. But lately... Lately, I've sensed a different response to the lack of time. Felt in my bones the singular worth of each passing moment. Perhaps the goal is not to spend the day power skiing atop an ocean of multitasking. Maybe that's not what we're supposed to do. Maybe the idea is to swim slower, dive deeper, and look around. Really look around. There's a difference between a life of width and a life of depth. And so in 36 hours, ready or not, Another year will be behind us. Another circle round the sun. What has 2018 been like for you? Have there been times when you felt like you were power skiing atop an ocean of multitasking? I'll confess that's been true for me sometimes. Have there also been moments when you felt in your bones the singular worth of each passing moment? When you have dived deeper and really looked around? Either way, what do you want more of in 2019? And, and this is a crucial question, what are you willing to let go of to make room for a different way of being in the world? Some problems are a matter of addition, others are a matter of subtraction, right? To equip us for the journey, I'd like to invite you on a brief tour through four perspectives on different major worldviews on how to live a life of happiness, how to live a good life. And although there are far more worldviews than just four, um, we'll consider for this morning two sources from the West, Aristotle, and then skipping way into the present, um, positive psychology, and two from the East, Confucianism and Taoism. As you may know, these ancient sources of wisdom do not all agree. In fact, in a lot of ways, they explicitly disagree about what causes happiness, what results in a good life. So let's be honest here at the outset about the open secret of happiness and living the good life. Don't believe anyone who is trying to sell you capital T, 
capital O, you know, the one true key to eternal happiness for all times and all places and all people. It doesn't exist. That person is a snake oil salesman. But there are time-tested tools for increasing happiness and the good life that can serve us, but differently and in different seasons of our life. So as we continue, consider whether one or more of the following four tools might be particularly helpful for you in the coming year. As we begin, it's also important to acknowledge that there are also at least three different types of happiness. The first, most basic, most direct level of happiness is just feeling happy, feeling the emotion of happiness for whatever confluence of circumstances in any given present moment. Could be receiving good news, hearing a favorite song, spending time with friends, eating a good meal, whatever those things, uh, maybe those things that cause you joy that you may have been reminded of in the um, spoken meditation and silent meditation that Karen led us in. A second level of happiness adds thinking into the mix, and that cognitive evaluation is whether or not we judge our lives, irrespective of any given present moment, whether we overall judge our lives to be generally going in a positive direction. So on balance, are there more good things than bad things in your life? The third and final level of happiness is not only about moving in a positive direction, but also whether or not you're feeling like you're fulfilling your particular potential as a human being. That third level of happiness, of fulfilling one's potential, is where Aristotle can be a particularly helpful guide. Aristotle was an ancient Greek philosopher. He lived in the 4th century BCE. He was a student in Plato's Academy and later tutored Alexander the Great. One key concept in his philosophy is called eudaimonia, which is from the Greek prefix eu, that just means good, and daemon, which kind of sounds a lot like demon. Well, it, it means spirit of sorts. And so in a similar way that euthanasia means good death, eudaimonia, eudaemon, means good spirit. So it's about listening to your good inner spirit, so to speak, uh, to move in the direction of well-being, the direction of flourishing. For Aristotle, the good life, the life that puts eudaimonia into practice, is more is about more than feeling the temporary emotion of level one happiness, or even moving in a generally positive direction of level two happiness. He urges us to bring to fruition the unique gifts that are our own in order to truly flourish as a human being. The classic example of what flourishing looks like from Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics um, is that a human being fulfilling their potential is the equivalent of an acorn turning into an oak tree. So we're trying to do that to ourselves. Or if you prefer a caterpillar turning into a butterfly. And I see the sun emerging from the crowd. So if you need to move around to a, a more darkened place in the sanctuary, go for it. Uh, so what does that acorn to oak tree or caterpillar to butterfly shift look like for you or for those you love? Keep that question in mind as we move from the west to the east and consider the wisdom of Taoism. And as much as I appreciate Aristotle, he can also really stress me out. 
it can feel both inspiring as well as like a lot of pressure to work on becoming your version of acorn to oak tree, caterpillar to butterfly. And there are seasons in our life when the Tao Te Ching's um, advice to practice what it calls Wu Wei, non-action, or, uh, and it means that in the sense of spontaneity without intentional striving. There are times when that can feel like a welcome corrective to too much goal-oriented striving. Religion scholars tell us that the text we know as the Tao Te Ching was not written by some guy named Lao Tzu uh, or any one historical figure. Instead, it turns out that it's actually an anthology of wise sayings that were transmitted among the elite of ancient China. And it comprises materials from different sources and from different times. The earliest strata of the text may well be two and a half millennia old or more. And these ancient oral traditions began to be collected and written down in what became a standard form around 300 BCE, which interestingly is contemporaneous with Aristotle. The title of the most famous Taoist text, as I mentioned, is the Tao Te Ching, and it's a combination of three Chinese words. Tao, it literally means the way. And it means the way in the sense of the best way of proceeding or going on. Day, that middle word, uh, literally power, or what could be translated as efficacy, um, toward that perfectly ordered or governed process. And finally, Jing, meaning classical scripture. So when we combine those three words, the Tao Te Ching is an honorary title, meaning the classical scripture of the way and its efficacy. Let's consider just one excerpt from chapter 57 of the Tao Te Ching. The more prohibitions and rules, the poorer people become. The more government regulations, right? We'll get to this kind of a form of of libertarianism. The sharper people's weapons, the more they riot. The more skilled their techniques, the more time they've spent honing their techniques, the more grotesque their works. Just do it. Just do it, man. Go with the flow, right? The more elaborate the laws, trying so hard to control people, the more the people commit crimes. It's sort of a, the law of unintended consequences is what the Tao Te Ching is all about. Therefore, the sage says, I do nothing. The people transform themselves. I enjoy serenity. The people govern themselves. I cultivate emptiness and the people become prosperous. I have no desires, and the people simplify themselves. Again, it's kind of like a spiritual libertarianism, and it can work at certain times and in certain seasons. However, because both Aristotelianism and Taoism both often stress the role of the individual, I wanted to be sure to bring in also a worldview like Confucianism that highlights the importance of community, which can also play a role, a vital role, in various seasons of life as well. Confucius was a Chinese philosopher who preceded both Aristotle and the Tao Te Ching by around two centuries. And in contrast to an emphasis on an individual following their bliss, 
Confucianism reminds us that an equally important support for human flourishing can come from being part of a community, being part of a movement that is larger than yourself. The sustaining rhythm of traditions celebrated annually, the connection and being part of a family, a community, a network, instead of feeling like you have to go it alone, recreate the wheel, always be forging and innovating some new thing. So at this point, we already have three diverse options on the table, and I'll hasten to reiterate that it is not a matter of debating which one is the best or which one is right with a capital R. It's not about figuring out whether all 7.7 and growing billion people on this planet should be striving toward the end of Aristotle's acorn flourishing into an oak tree or practicing Taoist spontaneity without intentional striving or all conforming to Confucian communal traditions and rules. Rather, the question is, which source of wisdom is most skillful for you in this particular season of your life? So with that caveat in mind, let's add in one final perspective, the modern positive psychology movement, which attempts to shift the positive psych- attempt to shift psychology, which traditionally focused obsessively on your pathologies, on the things that are wrong with you, which can be helpful in certain seasons of your life, those things that are holding you back. But positive psychology tends to shift the focus to your strengths. What really helps you thrive, and how do we get more of that instead of just on the negative? The shift can, again, be quite fruitful in certain seasons. Indeed, when Dr. Tal Ben-Shahar began teaching positive psychology at Harvard, it quickly became the most popular course in the university's history. And one of the stories that he always includes in this happiness course is from Robert Piercig from his Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. Piercing tells the story of climbing the Himalayas with a group of Zen monks. Piercing found himself becoming exhausted and overwhelmed, and he had to drop out. He's like, just go ahead, leave me behind. He was concentrating on how steep this mountain was and how far they had to go, and he just became daunted, and he gave up. So focused on a goal that seemed out of his reach, he lost his will and stamina to continue. The monks, in contrast, they had their eye on the peak as well, but it was only to steady themselves on the ultimate source, not because reaching the peak itself was their chief goal. Knowing that they were headed in the right direction allowed them to focus their attention and enjoy every step rather than being overwhelmed by what was still ahead and knowing that they wouldn't be happy until they reached the top, and if they weren't going to reach the top, might as well give up. The takeaway is that if you're an acorn, spending all your time self-flagellating because you're not an oak tree is demoralizing. It's innervating. The trick is to enjoy each stage of the journey to the extent possible and to one day look back Oh, I've become an oak tree after all, but maybe an oak tree that looks different than what you originally envisioned. It's also important to realize that achieving a goal tends to only give us a brief temporary burst of level one happiness. So if we could all magically skip all those middle stages and move instantly from acorn to oak tree, uh, if we could all magically apparate from the bottom of the mountain to the top, 
The truth is that relatively quickly, you tend to go back to your homeostasis. You go back to, you are temporarily happy, but then you go back to that whatever baseline is for you. Uh, the same dynamic happens to lottery winners. We've seen this happen over and over. People become temporarily exuberantly happy, and then sometimes amidst millions of dollars, they revert back to whatever their temporary state is. Psychology has shown us that happiness does increase with more money, but only up to about $75,000 a year. And then there's just extreme diminishing marginal returns. So having more money does make you happier, but only kind of to that, you know, having the base level of Maslow's hierarchy um, uh, stable. Uh, The psychologist Daniel Gilbert summarizes it uh, this way. He says that happiness is not about making it to the peak of the mountain. That just gives you a brief burst of level one happiness. Nor is it about climbing aimlessly around the mountain, going nowhere, wandering in the wilderness. He says happiness is the experience of climbing toward the peak. This advice to select a path that allows us to enjoy not only the destination, but each stage of the journey, more or less, maybe some stages more than others, has some resonances to our opening poem from uh, Carrie Newcomer about the differences between a life of width, of multitasking, and a life of depth, savoring the singular worth of each passing moment. And to bookend our reflection, I invite you to hear an excerpt from a New Year's poem by my colleague, the Reverend Gretchen Haley. Allow her words to perhaps awaken your imagination further about what might be possible for you in 2019. She writes, what songs would you sing to yourself or others? What blessings would you name and share with strangers and with friends? If you could take now that first step, what journey would you begin? Across deserts or mountains, or would you take to the sky, which despite the bitter cold is still vast and filled with light? What work would you take? What mischief would you make with boldness and bravery? What failure would you embrace? And what would you release? And where in the end would you return and call home? In this new day on the brink of a new year, no magic wishing or wondering is required for such a chance is always available. As with the in and out of breath, We can begin now to live like we mean it, to see with new eyes that life is already and always available to us, to respond to this gift with wonder and gratitude, to join in this partnership, to tend this flame even when it breaks our heart, to keep showing up, to go with courage into each new dawning day. To further fuel your discernment of potential areas of change, I invite you to consider a series of questions I received a few years ago as part of a Choose Health program. As you receive these questions, notice if one or more of these areas particularly resonates with you. You may notice it as when I name it, maybe you'll feel a little tightening in the gut or a little quickening of your heartbeat to know that, ooh, yeah, that's the thing I need to focus on in 2019. Is it physical wellness? When do you feel physically alive, your body skillfully engaged? And what would help you feel that way more often? 
physical wellness. For me, it's yoga. That's the thing I'm not doing that I should be. Emotional wellness. When or how do you feel emotionally engaged? Let yourself dream about what would add more joy to your life. Who gives you permission to feel your emotions? Intellectual wellness. When or how does your mind feel energized, buzzing with electric vitality? How can you do more of that if what you need is more intellectual wellness? Or how about financial wellness? What would make you feel more comfortable and secure in your finances? Or social wellness. When do you feel connected to those that you love and value as opposed to feeling alienated? Vocational wellness. How or when do you feel fulfilled and optimistic at work? And spiritual wellness. What individual or communal practice makes you feel connected to something larger than yourself? As you continue to reflect, you'll be invited in a few minutes to participate in two ritual responses that are part of our UU tradition of fire communion. Looking back on 2018, is there a person, is there a place, is there a habit that has been a hindrance to your well-being? Is there something that you feel called to let go or to say no to in the new year? In a few moments, uh, after we sing our hymn, I invite, I'll invite you to come forward silently to hold your piece of paper, and, be, and you'll receive it at the front, and, and set an intention before you light this on fire. We'll get to that. Set an intention. What do you want to let go of in 2019 or say no to in the new year? Um, and then I invite you... Um, and while burning that slip of paper, that doesn't mean that, you know, oh, good, it's burned, that's taken care of. No, you actually have to live into it in 2019, but it's a, uh, it's a way of setting an intention uh, to let go of something that's been life-negating for you. You'll also be invited to light a votive candle to set an intention of something you want to do, something you want to affirm, something you want to say yes to in the new year. I've seen that poem before, but what that reminded me of is about this, this, this happiness stuff. Uh, so her, her fish did not jump out of its bowl, right? But I, I promise this is a true story. Uh, in college, uh, uh, a girlfriend had given me tadpoles to fulfill their potential and become frogs, right, in, in my college dorm room. And when we broke up, I swear to you, I went back to my dorm room. They had leapt out of their bowl and were dried and shriveled on my dorm room floor. <laughs> so... Sometimes they do jump. Uh, they were in the aquarium they came with. And anyway, um, but where I'm going with that <laughs> is that one of the basic sources or discernment tools for happiness is literally just paying attention. Is this person, is this place, is this thing, is this habit, this activity, is it a pattern of consolation for me or is it a pattern of desolation for me you know on balance does this console me does it bring me uh, you know on the other side of it or while doing it or being with this person does it bring me joy does it make me feel connected does it make me feel grateful does it make me feel more fully myself flourishing or conversely does it leave me feeling more desolate right more 
alienated, more um, innervated, more less fully, you know, more inauthentically myself. That's really a pretty basic tool that can be pretty helpful for you deciding what do I want more of and what do I want less of in my life. Uh, Gail Godwin, if any of you have read her novel Evensong, talks about your what you want to move toward, what you're called toward is that which makes more of you, right? Makes you more authentically yourself. Uh, or Frederick Beekner said it this way. He said, the thing that you're called to is, he said, neither the soft birth nor the hair shirt will do. And, and that's birth, B-E-R-T-H, like a ship. That if a soft birth means a loose mooring, and if a storm comes, the ship in a loose mooring and a soft birth will bang around and it will... Um, get wrecked even in harbor. So he says, neither a soft birth nor a hair shirt will do. A hair shirt's what you wear in the Middle Ages. They would wear under their clothes to constantly chafe them. He's like, that's not going to help either. He says, what you're called to is that place where your deep gladness meets the world's deep hunger. It's not just your deep gladness, right? Because that's just isolating and not enough. You want that place where where what you enjoy meets meaning, right? What, What the world's deep hunger, that you want, you want to look for that intersection of those things. Or a, a tradition I didn't talk about, one of the many other world traditions I could have talked about, is the Buddhist tradition. That's one of the ones most important to my own practice. And uh, Rick Hansen, who wrote the wonderful book, Buddha's Brain, if you haven't read that, I, I uh, recommend it to you. But he talks about the simple pattern of, he calls it, let be, let go, let in. Let go, let be, let in, I think is how he says it. And by let go, he means uh, let be. Let be, he means mindfulness. So just whatever you're experiencing, just notice it. Don't repress it. Don't just notice it mindfully. So, And uh, my, my meditation teacher uh, recommends the phrase, there is blank. Just be like, oh, there's anger. Oh, there's sadness, right? Just, just notice it mindfully. Let it be. And then let it go. So uh, mindfulness is kind of the go-to move in Buddhism. And then breathing is what we sometimes call breathing is home base. So start by letting it be, then let it go. Just notice what's happening, and then go to home base. Just breathe. And then let in is what Rick Hansen calls it savoring. Because our brains have evolved to be like Teflon for good news and um, Velcro for bad news, uh, you have to, it's, it's important to let in the good things very intentionally to really slow down and savor those consolations. Because the desolations, those are going to stick with you whether you want to or not. Just note them, and then go back to home base, breathing. So they're just some tools. Figure out what's most helpful for you in this season of your life. And so as you continue um, from this place and into the week and into the year to come, may you continue your journey in love. Care for one another. Care for this one earth. Do justice and make peace. And as you go, whatever taste or touch you've had in this time and place of hope, of love, of peace or joy, that goes with you into the world. We're different for having been here together. May you live boldly. May you live with thanksgiving.